My name is Isabella Johnston, the Intern Whisperer, and today's tip of the week is about diversity and inclusion. The workforce is multi-generational and multi-dimensional. And what does that mean? All five generations are in the workplace. Multi-dimensional is represented by people of all types. Who are they? Individuals with disabilities, veterans, internationals, LGBTQs, and religious representation. The multi-generational is all five generations in the workplace. So it's important to remember that everyone wants to be seen, heard, accepted, and valued. Welcome to The Intern Whisperer, the show all about the future of work. And today's guest is Gonzalo Tendela. And I know him through the Transcend Network. He is one of the founders of examined.io. You're going to get to learn all about that. He is brilliant. And he was like, we have all kinds of fun times from talking about Transcend Network. And we even have a book of quotes by, by him. So it's going to be <laughs> we're good. We're going to have fun. All right. So I kick off the show with five words that you say describe you. So what are your five words and why those five words? Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, so the first one I would say is that uh, I tend to be a bit of a thought leader. Uh, I like to think about things differently. I like to challenge the way we do it. And I say the second word is that I'm a first principles thinker. And what that means is that I try to distill down the problems into its basic fundamental truths. And sometimes those truths lie in physics. Sometimes those truths lie in psychology. Uh, but you try to bring boil it down the issue or the problem into its first principles uh, pieces and then reason up from there or then innovate from there. Uh, and third one I'd say is a serial founder. So I've started a number of businesses. Uh, this is my first ed tech venture. So I'm learning all about the education landscape and, and world. Um, some people call me a change maker because I usually come in and try to change everything, um, look at things completely differently, um, and, and sort of try to tackle big, big problems. And then the last one is I'm definitely, uh, I'm a snowboarder. I love to snowboard, spend a lot of my time in the backcountry, uh, up the mountains in, in Whistler or around there in the BC coast, coastal mountain range. So your background is, tell us our listeners, well, our listeners don't know what it is. They can't see it. But our, we try to make our show so it's super friendly for people that are deaf. And even in the closed captions, they may not know where you live. So when you're saying it's Whistler and the backwoods, where are you? Because your background is amazing. Yeah, well, this background on the Zoom thing, is it's not actually Whistler. This is Niagara Falls. Uh, wow. So I'm, I'm a little bit of a digital nomad. My wife and I uh, kind of picked up and, and left during the pandemic. I went to, to Spain lived in Madrid for a bit, came back and then lived in Whistler. And now we're living in, in uh, the Niagara Falls region in Ontario, Canada. Yeah. It looks so this is a beautiful kind of sunset photo of water flushing over the falls. I think that looks like the American side. Uh, mm -hmm. There's an American side, a Canadian side of the falls. And yeah, it's kind of where I'm at these so days. Pretty. I'm inspired. Now I want to go to Canada and go check it out for sure. Okay. So tell our, tell our listeners, how did you get started um, what did your career path look like to where you are now? Because as a problem solver, as somebody that likes to make change and looks at things differently, I am really looking forward to what that journey looks like. Well, it's um, it's never a straightforward path. I'll tell you that much. Uh, so I, I kind of 
I don't know where to start in this. And it's kind of, maybe we'll go down the rabbit hole. Well, we'll say, you kind of started my first unofficial, yeah, I kind of started my first unofficial business when I was in, in high school, um, where at the time, you know, I had been, like I said, I love snowboarding. So I used to compete. I knew a bunch of the, the reps. And at the end of the season, they would be, you know, have a bunch of demo boards of next year's product. And I saw this opportunity where they weren't really selling them. And I said, well, hey, we could, we could sell these to high school students because no one cares about a slightly used board. And if it's next year, the cool factor goes way high. So I started, uh, you know, selling these boards on consignment. Um, that led me into getting a deeper network, which then I became an extreme sports photographer. I actually shot the first, first cover of a magazine when I was 17 years old. Uh, it was a Snowboard Canada magazine. And then did that for a number of years, uh, kind of worked with Nike, Atomic, K2, a lot of the major brands. Um, then there was the so 2008, 2009 financial crisis came in. But just before that, all the trade shows and the industry started slowing down. And at the same time, uh, digital prosumer cameras, like anyone could buy a digital SLR. And so the, the value of being a photographer was kind of going down. And I said, this is a great time to go to school. So my first university courses were uh, micro and macroeconomics during the financial recession. Like it was fall 2008. And I went up to the, to the professor at the time. He's the one who wrote the textbook. I was just blown away. I could go up to someone and ask them a question. And I said, if, if, if everyone's going to go a flight to safe haven currency, whenever there's inflation and other issues, um, what do we do when the, when the safe haven currency is the United States that's the issue? Like the US dollar was, was serious potential problems. And he said, well, you got to find other sort of non-traditional monetary sources. And so at that time, uh, I bet on gold. Uh, I put everything I had pretty much from uh, a lot of my photography days, sold some, most of my equipment, and I bought uh, junior mining stocks uh, in about February, March 2009. I just started throwing everything in. Just so happened to fully luck out at the bottom of that U-curve. Um, but I started becoming really enthralled in about this whole investor relations game. And so I went to a lot of mining conferences, learned about the stock market, learned about these companies because they all just happened to be in Vancouver. Uh, and, and then I, yeah, I got into investor mining or investor relations uh, consulting for a while, ran that till about 2011, 2012, where I felt that we were at the peak of gold and I sold out and I traveled the world for 18 months, um, went everywhere from Asia, South America, North America, Europe. It was a lot of fun. Came back uh, and then co-founded a technology company with a friend of mine. Um, he he actually brought me in and said, "Hey, this is what we want to do." That company was called Vanderco Solutions. I ran that as the CEO for about five years, and that was acquired in 2019. Then I went to go help my wife's family business uh, for about 18 months. Kind of came in as a consultant, then kind of as chief operating officer, whipped things into the kind of new modern way of doing things with technology. Uh, and then we left for Spain during the pandemic. That's where my wife did her MBA. And that's where I found the problem of, of academic integrity, which is what we're working on today. So I, I know it was a bit of a rabbit hole. Uh, no, but not at all. It's so, never a straightforward path. Not at all. I feel like you probably should have been training for the Olympics based on some of what you were telling. Because that whole snowboarding thing and then... Uh, I I realized so I really liked freestyle snowboarding like that was my 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 jam but I'm a very tall person I'm like six foot four so I 
found that it, it was very difficult to start to keep up with the progression of where things were going. And I, truth be told, I wasn't that really good at, at park. Um, I was I had a lot more fun in free riding, but I loved how the aesthetics of people looking, making it look good. So um, I was competing younger, didn't do too well. So I decided to kind of pivot, but stay in the industry, which is why I went to become a photographer. Yeah. Photography, if, I, if that was one of your pictures, that's really something also. Is it stock or one of yours? Uh, I found this one online. I found my, most of my stuff is guys jumping off of things oh. and girls. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about the startup that you have now? And I think you have a co-founder, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Johnny and Brad are, are my co-founders. So Johnny, uh, he's a serial founder as well. He started a company called bcjobs.ca uh, with a guy named Ryan. And he also started a company that is now uh, known as REW. Uh, I think it was at the time it was called Property Insights. Can't remember. I'd have to double check. So um, so he's our CTO. And then Brad Skousen is a PhD. He has been teaching online at IE University, teach their MBA program or taught their MBA program. Sorry. Uh, I believe he taught at Illinois or he got his uh, PhD there. I can't quite remember Brad's history, but this is his first company, uh, especially in tech as well. Um, he, I met him and I met when my wife and I were were in Madrid. She was doing her MBA at IE and, uh, and we, we met and we just hit it off and he saw the problem and I saw the problem and he decided, let's, let's go for it. Let's spring for the fences. So what examined, uh, examined AI does is we help university instructors deliver uh, exams to their students anywhere in the world with a high degree of privacy and integrity. So we think that um, you know online proctoring solutions have too many trade-offs and they don't really address the root issues. Mm. So that's very interesting. How are, well, we'll save that for the second half of the show. <laughs> yeah. Chat GPT, but yeah. Uh, so what are some of the, um, who's your client then? Is it schools? I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, ultimately I believe their client is the student, right? So I think one of my spiky points of view is that, that the majority of the education sector is making technology for the wrong people. So they start making technology for administrators who then push it down to professors who then have no choice is the students have to use it. But when you look at the ratios for every one administrator, there might be 20 professors. And for every one professor, there's, you know, 40 to 60 students. And so what starts to happen is um, technology gets really, really bad to use in universities and students will hate it. Uh, and so we believe that our client is the student. So we focused a lot of effort at the beginning is like, what is a great student experience to take an assessment, to take an exam, to take a quiz, all that. How do we provide the best student experience? And then from there, we're now working on, well, how do we provide a great instructor experience? Mm -hmm. So we're we're currently at that stage in, in our product development where the instructors are really liking it. It's simple, but there's a lot more stuff we can do, a lot more features that would make their job significantly better. And then administration is a little bit of an afterthought, right? It's more like, yes, we know we need privacy security. Yes, we know we need, um, you know, VPATs for accessibility. Yes, we know we need LTI integration, but... Uh, you know, a lot of, you know, bulk edit, copy paste, you know, stuff like that we can deal with after everyone's having a great assessment. And so that's kind of been our viewpoint. Mm. Really interesting. Um, how far are you in this process of rolling your product out? Yeah. So we were founded in May of 2021. Yeah. Looking back. So we're, you know, coming up to the two year mark. 
And we're founded on the principle of, of ideation, iteration, uh, get it out there, see what is going to happen. So we experiment quite a lot. Uh, so when we founded, we, we ran our first couple exams on this notion of what we call dynamic questions, which is where the assessment essentially is changed for each individual student. It, it kind of adapts to that particular student. Um, whether it is a unique variation or whether they're going to be using ChatGPT, uh, so on and so forth. So it allows for more, more of a dynamic environment. And so we built a, you know, what I call rudimentary proof of concept within the first two, three weeks and had it live um, right there uh, with, with professors in universities. And we gathered data, did it actually solve the problem? And then we started iterating like, are we solving the issue without using a camera? Can we do it without invasive proctoring and privacy? And we iterated. So now, you know, the first year, first school year, we did about 4,000 assessments. Uh, and this school year, we're about halfway through. And I think we've delivered over 20,000 assessments. And we're probably on track to do, uh, in this school year, we'll do over 50,000 in in probably by the end of 2023 in the calendar year, we probably might do about, about a hundred thousand assessments. Wow. That is quite a bit. And that sounds like really good feedback for obviously for your clients, the students, as well as schools. So, and administrators, we'll throw them all in there. Yeah. The key, the key to feedback, I think is you really have to create feedback as a part of your process, as a part of your, um, as part of your product. So what we do, it's very simple. I'm, I'm like, why didn't anyone do this before? Mm -hmm. Is at the end of every exam, at the end of every test, at the end of every quiz, when a student has completed their assessment, so to speak, um, we have a nice little page that just says straight up, like, how would you rate the software? And you'd be surprised. Uh, we get about 33% of students rating the software and giving us feedback after every exam. And you wonder like, well, well, why? And it's because no one ever asked the student about their experience. Like you have these universities charging lots of money for a degree and the student is not, they say the student is the center of all of the experience, but they don't really design everything around it. They adopt the softwares that are available to make the center really, truly the, the, the student, the center of the experience. You need to build feedback into their whole experiential process and not just, you know, rate your professor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've uh, been on that side of being the professor. So what I, I totally agree with you that the way that you're designing it should be for the student to a certain extent, maybe the, the professor, because they're the person that has to interact with the student. Oh, a hundred percent. Again, for every one, you know, 20, let's say 40 to 60 students, there's going to be at least one professor. And so there's going to be way more professors than administrators. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're going to be the ones that are also helping to answer questions uh, if they have a student has a problem with it, whatever. So you almost make them your trainers to a certain extent. Yeah. And, and you know, what's what's interesting is getting into this industry, I just didn't realize how low the bar was. I mean, we we were seeing, you know, we, you know, quote from a, a client, our support has dropped 90% since we implemented your testing system. I'm like, what? What do you mean support? It's like, yeah, like we with students asking professors for help, professors asking administrators for help, administrators and asking the vendors for help. I'm like, why? And it's people trying to do too much for too many devices. And I realize it's things like installing software on devices, trying to support all these different browsers instead of trying to be very simplified and streamlined um, with no installation. There's a lot. There's a lot to it, really. But I was actually quite surprised that 
professors just don't have a frictionless experience for doing something as, as routine as giving an exam. That is very true. And as one person, you know, I've taught at many colleges and every school has different ways of delivering whatever the content is that I'm using. Blackboard was one of the things that I used to use, but then they'd go and try different ways of distributing their, their information. And I could tell you there was plenty of platform. I'm not going to go throw them all out there because yeah. that does not serve a good. Well, point. Canvas, I mean, from our side, Canvas is really taking off uh, compared to Blackboard. Blackboard seems to be losing a bit of its market share. Yeah. Um, uh, I've heard good things about Brightspace and D2L kind of stuff, but I haven't really seen a lot of it yet. Like we haven't really worked too, too much and too deeply. Uh, I would say 80% of our clientele uses uh, Canvas right now. Mm, very yeah, nice. Moodle seems to be another one that people like. Yeah. A lot of people that are instructional designers tell me about Moodle. Yeah. What's interesting is, is uh, I can I can see the notion people don't want to pay for an LMS. So then they use Moodle, um, but they end up paying in salaries for people to support and customize Moodle. So it's like you end up paying the same thing really as an institution. Uh, and it, it, it it's just unfortunate when people go in um, not understanding that you do need support for that. You do need people to do customization like Moodle administrators, then, then it becomes a, a challenge for that task. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So before we, before we leave this, I'm just curious, what is your growth plan? Because are you looking to stay just in the U S or are you wanting to go global? I yeah. Global. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great question. I believe that education is a global opportunity, is a global space. We, we does, it shouldn't matter where I am mm -hmm. to want to learn, right? <laughs> right. So that shouldn't matter. We should be able to be more accessible to more people. Um, but there are massive challenges to doing so. I mean, the fact that GDPR privacy laws are very different than FIPA and FERPA uh, privacy laws. Yeah, we might assimilate, but it's very difficult to build and innovate a as a small startup company when you have to architect systems for GDPR and you have to maintain uh, differentiation of citizens. Like it's so, so that aside, uh, coming into what our objectives are, we find that the United States teams to, tends to be the fastest moving of, of markets we've tested. Um, for example, we've tested the United States, Canada uh, and Spain and some South American countries. Uh, so some, some European countries as well. Europe tends to fall behind Canada and Canada tends to fall behind the United States. So in terms of adoption, I think naturally we're going to see a, you know, United States start, um, then move up to Canada, then over to Europe. Uh, and mostly because we don't actually have any expertise about around Australia. Australia seems to be a pretty quick moving, uh, probably the fastest in the world, but it's, it's really far both geographically time zone differences, no network that I wouldn't want to compete there yet. Uh, I'd like to establish uh, a little bit of a, a flywheel cadence of rhythm in the United States first. Mm, that's good. Well, we're going to go into a few other interesting questions because I always like our listeners to be able to get a better picture of who you are. So yeah. what is a favorite quote that you live by? Oh, I think there's so many and it really comes down to the context of how we're talking and where we're at. But I think one that stands out and I say a lot is you are what we, oh, sorry, we, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is a habit, not an act. Um, now, there's some, when you dig into this quote, you can find that, oh, it's Aristotle. And someone said, no, it's this other person. And 
I think that attribution on this one is it's it's very old. It's somewhat, and it's kind of up in the air of who actually said it, but I do actually believe it. I think that excellence is a form of discipline and repeat repeated process. And, and that's really just a habit. And so, uh, you know, I love books like Atomic Habits and in that kind of realm. Um, and I also like the concept of, you know, good technology forms habit uh, and you can use habit formation in a positive way. So, yeah. well, that's on point with one of the ways that people learn, right? Because it's through repetition that we learn. Yeah. And if you're going to be choosing to do something, you should always strive for excellence. Well, I mean, here, here's one of the philosophical questions, and I'm not saying I'm right or wrong, but the question is, is, are, is, is learning by spaced repetition really learning pattern recognition? Because IQ tests are pretty much nothing more than pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we can argue a bit of the depths of it, but I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much the proxy for intelligence in our society is, is pattern recognition. And so spaced repetition allows you to gain knowledge or, or practice on a particular skill. And you have the, you know, Bloom's two Sigma problem, which is the um, deliberate practice plus uh, one-on-one learning gets you 98% better than, than anyone else who just takes a class. So I think that, you know, maybe it is all pushed down to learning. I don't know. I don't know enough yet. I'm still digging into, into the first principles to understand it all. You have a learning scientist on your team too. Uh, yeah, I mean, we 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 learn we work with a lot of people from different consultants, try to understand different places. But generally speaking, as we approach a problem, we try to distill the problem down to again that first principle, like a human psychology. And then what we try to do is review the academic resources on those particular things, and then the what are called leading experts in the field. Um, so people who are on the leading experts, of let's say learning scientists or not, um, and then we try to piece it all together to come up with a totally different, unique approach. Mm-hmm. I yeah. like that very much. Um, what is the hardest lesson that you learned that was um, something that changed your life? I have a few. Um, I will I will do one that was very personal. So I got into photography because I loved taking photos. Uh, I loved creating that like that product, that beautiful image, right? And I did it for intrinsic motivational reasons. And as I became a professional photographer, it became a extrinsic motivator to get up and do work. And I killed my love for photography because of it. And so I think there's this, it's a form of psychology, cognitive dissonance, or somewhere in that realm, that area. And when you basically the lesson was when you take someone who's intrinsically motivated to do something and you you switch their motivation to in extrinsic rewards they lose all motivation over time mm-hmm. and i lost one of my loves and my passions from that and so just learning that when someone's internally motivated to do something like they're really intrinsically there how you can harness and empower them with that without using external forces that could actually detract from it. And so they always say, do what you love. But I say, there's a, there's a double-edged sword on that one. Yeah, it is. That was a tough, that was a tough lesson. Yeah. Yeah. It always is. There's pros and cons <laughs> and it's a careful choice habit. Yeah. Just like we were talking about before, what you love can become something that's not yeah. always very good. 
Yeah, right. and, I, and I got another one that's a, that's an interesting business lesson. So uh, a couple of names and people will remain nameless, but I've got a, a friend who um, was wrongfully dismissed from a circle of billionaires, billionaire circle, basically. And it was a wrongful dismissal, you know, basically um, false accusations and everything. And he went to go defend himself so to try and find a lawyer. And what he learned is once you reach a certain level, you actually start working with a bunch of different law firms and it starts creating conflict checks so that you can never get a lawyer to defend yourself. And so it, I, I learned it the hard way in terms of like through being there supporting and like learning like, wow, this is actually tough. So my advice, don't, don't mess around with billionaires. <laughs> they let, they're going to get what they want. You know, it's a, it's a tough lesson. He, he actually learned it, but in the end it all worked out, but wow. Like it was a whole world of, of strategies and law that I'd never seen before. So, What are you most grateful for? I think I am most grateful for probably my, my, my parents' decision um, to leave Peru before they had me. Uh, so both my parents are immigrated to Canada from Peru. Um, and I was basically had my first birthday in Canada. I was actually born in the States, kind of on the way, so to speak. And that decision has given me every springboard of opportunity being to to basically being raised in a first world country where I can have access to good education, uh, can have access to clean water, good health care, like simple basic necessities that I think everyone takes for granted. I think that that decision is the thing I'm most grateful for. I, don't, I think I would have a 180 totally different uh, life if my parents hadn't made that decision. You know, that's really true. <clears throat> I was talking with somebody else and we were discussing how developing countries, um, previously called third world, but developing countries, mm -hmm. uh, they do not have the same, what we take for granted here in the United States. Every time I go to one of those places, I always come back and I go, gosh, we have so much here, so much. We, we really take so much for granted. I mean, I think we take for like, we, we often see these YouTube videos of people going like, oh yeah, I'm falsely arrested. And here's all the things, your amendment rights and all this stuff that you could be doing and, you know, ragging on the police officer for not getting it perfect. I, I, I suddenly see this and I go, guys, police officers are showing up. Police officers are, are there. I mean, I'm not saying they're perfect, but it's a lot better than some of the corruption you see in the, in, in South America. It's a lot better than them not showing up so it's like it, 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 there's some like we don't we have i mean look I, I we probably shouldn't get into this topic i'll probably spring some some controversial thoughts and and i don't know enough to be an educated discussion about the the challenges that we face in the united states but in a third world country the rules don't there might be rules there but they don't function nor do they are they are actually up, upheld to any standard in the most side. And so we talk about corruption as a totally different world. Totally yes. different. Just look at what's happening in Peru right now. Yeah. Right. Like right now there is protests in the streets and you go down. Why are we protesting? I don't know. We just want the president out. Like, yeah. okay. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's nuts. Yeah. 
Well, we're going to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor, Transcend Network. Transcend Network helps early stage startup founders find product market fit through weekly experiments, receive fundraising support, and build a global founder investor network for ed tech and the future of work technologies. The Intern Whisperer is affiliated with Employers for Change, and we thank Transcend Network for being a sponsor of our show. Okay, so now we're going back to the second half of our show, where we're going to talk about the future of work. And what does that look like? So chat GPT. Okay, let's go. <laughs> I, you posted a question on LinkedIn. And I can't wait to hear what the response is for all of that. But go ahead and tell me. Oh, man. Uh, so yeah. And we may have to take a step back because some of our listeners may not know what OpenAI is and ChatGPT is. Yeah, let, let, let's lay some ground rules here. Let's, let's lay some foundation work because I think that this is going to uh, be a, a, very, a very deep subject of which I recommend that whoever's listening go down the rabbit hole, start to learn this because this is going to change a lot in our space. So firstly, let's talk about what is... ChatGPT. ChatGPT is a um, it is basically a chat interface with an artificial intelligence model. That artificial intelligence model has been trained. It's called a large language model. It's been trained on a very large set of data, um, and it's been kind of tuned on top of something called GPT. Uh, I believe it stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformers. We don't need to get into the details about large language models or GPTs or anything of that. What we need to talk about is uh, a few fundamental pieces. So first off, the scale, right? People akin it to like, you know, a significant portion of everything that's been ever written on the internet. Like that kind of, I mean, there's, there's, I think, a hundred and something billion parameters. Like there's quite a large amount of scale. So so it's not the, that the model is intelligent and can reason. No, it's that it has looked at enough data that it can minimize the errors in the language it writes and it generates. That's the, the sort of dumb layman term to, to explain it. So why is ChatGPT important? Well, when you go in a chat interface, you can talk with it, ask it questions, ask it to explain things. And it will do a pretty good job of getting things right. I mean, you can take a MBA exam from Wharton on the subject of operations and logistics and just put the questions in, multiple choice, fill in the blank, whatever, and it will score between a B minus and a B. Mm. And, and, and this paper just came out, you know, week and a half, two weeks ago about just that. It's we're talking Wharton MBA level. Um, it will generate original work. So you can say, compare and contrast, let's just use something generically. Compare and contrast the way Marvel uh, heroes and uh, DC heroes are different, right? Something like that, right? Uh, the difference between Marvel and DC universe. And it will write a full cohesive, you know, albeit short, maybe two page, maybe one page, essay that has an introduction, a body, a conclusion, a thesis, the points, all generative. And we take that and you throw it to, through a third-party plagiarism system, like turn it in or anything like that. 
it will show up as 100% original work. And so my spiky point of view, the thing that I wrote in LinkedIn was, I believe the co college essay is, is dead. Like it's dying. Yeah. Like the that way happened. we have it today. And it had a very visceral reaction from everyone. I mean, I think I had a, well over 100,000 views. Um, and I think about 150 people engaging the conversation and wanting to join a community about this topic because the reality is, is what some of the things that are, are flawed in our system, again, going down to its first principles, mm -hmm. is that we are measuring student students, knowledge assessments. You know, we're measuring them by the final output that they produce. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you have an AI assistant to generate original content that is going to be a B or B minus MBA level work, um, all of a sudden people start freaking out because now the essay, the final output of an essay, is it valid? Is it plagiarized? Is it actually original thought? Um, and the answer is, is well, we're getting, language is getting a calculator. That's the answer. And everyone needs to really think about those words. What I mean, language is getting a calculator. When we look back in history and we say, what happened when a calculator came out for math? Digital calculator or, you know, rudimentary calculator. Well, the first reaction from our higher institutions was ban calculators in class. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to use them. Why? Students are not going to think anymore. They need to be able to do the work, right? Uh, then it became, you know, and it was very much, even when I was in elementary school and high school, show your work, right? Well, today we take, you know, a simple calculator like this Texas Instrument BA, BA2+, plus, which is the business calculator, and we're teaching, all right, N stands for number of periods, I over Y stands for interest rates per year, present value, here's how you calculate and put the numbers in to get to a net present value or to get to your future value or to, you know, compute these uh, fundamental financial calculations. And then the questions are, okay, here's company A, here's company B, do the work, use your calculator to help you. Now, which company is doing better? Which one do you invest in, right? So calculators have helped students and helped people lift to a higher level of thinking as a tool. Mm -hmm. And that took a really, really long time for higher ed to embrace it and work with it and adopt it, but it happened. And so what AI specifically, what generative AI, generative AI is, is it is a calculator for language, is to help and assistance. So there are some, some startups out there uh, that are basically a, like a word processor. Think of like Microsoft Office with AI built in. So think of like when you're typing, you can finish your sentence just like you would in Gmail, you know, suggestions, well, like that on steroids. Or you can stop, you can do a command and you can say, generate, I need to understand or explain, give me a paragraph on hydrodynamics. And so as I'm writing an essay or a paper, I may want to spend one power paragraph or two explaining how hydrodynamics works another paragraph explaining viscosity, and then the third paragraph I put together. And so do I really need to write a whole new thing on how, how hydrodynamics works? Do I really need to write a whole new thing on how viscosity works? No, I really don't. It's like work of common knowledge. 
it's like assumed common knowledge now um, in social areas, right? What it really matters is how they work together and how I, uh, you know, extrapolate to the end goal I'm reaching. So ChatGPT is a calculator for language. And a lot of people are trying to say, well, we need to make a detection. We need to check if it's plagiarism. And to that, I say that's a futile effort. If it does not matter whether or not a student uses a calculator and with language, I can just take it and paraphrase it or drop it into a quill bot and have it all rewrite itself in different words and you're not going to detect it. And so detection isn't the solution here. Um, I think the solution is to change the way of which we are assessing students. Maybe instead of assessing the final output, we start assessing the work that went into it, but how they worked with these machines. Mm-hmm. Instead of assessing um, you know, essays, maybe it's more case scenarios, process, problems, um, maybe it's, and actually we're doing this. So this is first time I'm publicly telling anyone on February 15th, we'll be launching our first exam with chat GPT in it to help students during their exam and changing, totally changing everything about this assumption of how we work with it. And the idea is that, well, when you use chat GPT, we can weight your score accordingly. So instead of asking, you know, what is the answer? And here's ChatGPT's exa- example. It's like using ChatGPT changes the question to, are you correct or not? Or is, is the AI correct or not? And then the weighted amount is 50% guess instead of a 33% guess and so on and so forth. And so we can start to do that so we still discriminate knowledge at scale. But now we're getting into too many details. <laughs> I, I like this so much because what you're proposing by, if we use the process, right? to be able to evaluate how do they think that's honestly what i've done when i go and do a portfolio review for graphic design students or if you're uh whether you're a phd or whatever you still want to see okay so where was your brainstorming i was an english teacher so i'll use this as the example we would say okay i want to see your brainstorming cluster if that's what we were using. I want to see a draft of what you wrote. I want to see your sources that you pulled. And then that's fine. You can go use chat GPT. It's totally good. But that is going to be one of your sources that you're using to build. whatever. Oh, 100%. I think most people are, are there. And if they're not, then they're just kind of behind the times. But it, it, most people are there already. It's like, look, you're allowed to use chat GPT. Use it as a source. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're going to say, we're going to use the plagiarism detection, which like GPT-0 is the, the one right now that seems to be catching on um, to detect whether or not it was AI uh, generated. But again, it's a futile effort. It's going to be temporary stopgap because two things are going to happen. Two forces that you can't stop. First force is these models will get better, better, sorry, will get better and better and better. So they will become more accurate and they'll become uh, more diverse in tone, style, all that kind of stuff. So detection will be harder and harder and harder over time because mm-hmm. it will just generate more of it. So you're, you're not going to stop the billions and billions and billions of dollars that are going into AI. Uh, it's not going to happen. So you have to adapt and use it like a tool, assuming it's going to become near perfect. Yeah, it will. It absolutely will. Well, well, I mean, there are hints right now that we are going to start hitting that diminishing returns. 
you know, like uh, OpenAI is CEO Sam Altman, uh, I think last week had said, you know, I think people might be disappointed by GPT-4, right? He's trying to set the tone. And I think it's rightfully so. I mean, the the hype on this right now is so large. I mean, we're even talking about it. You know, it's, it's the hype on this is so large. It's in every uh, news media. And a lot of people don't really get the subtle differences by saying, it passed a Wharton exam versus like, no, no, no. Operations and logistics, quantitative based thing is a very different problem than reasoning and philosophy. Like there's a lot of different things here, right? So there's some subtle differences, but I think that either way, we're going to see incremental improvements, maybe even step change improvements, but we're really going to see the step changes when we move away from transformers and into the next major AI models. Um, but uh, this is not here for us to talk about it here. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I, um, that this was my concern, and I know we were talking about it, but they took away cursive handwriting in the public schools. And so there's like 10 years, yeah. I don't think it's been there. And my concern with this type of technology is that people may not remember or know how to do research. So some of the discussion has been, well, do they really know how to research things now? Because we have Google. And then throwing another topic so we can just add on to it, because I said Google, is I've seen articles coming out. Is this going to be the new Google? Okay, so two different subjects there. Let's start with the first one. Um, so I think there was an article that just came out in higher ed the last two days or three days that talked about how um, they ChatGPT and writing. Like there used to be about three buckets, right? The first in high school, let's say. The first bucket is they're still struggling to master grammar. Mm -hmm. right? They're still not there yet. Right. The second one is like, we've got grammar, I can write it, but they're nowhere near tone or style. Mm -hmm. And then the third bucket, they just get it, grammar, and they are starting to play with style, starting to play with tone and consistency throughout their paper. And those tend to be the A students in English, right? You know, and then you have your middle ground and then you have your struggling. What ChatGPT is bringing all the level three people, like the bottom of the buckets, up immediately. So that maybe what we're teaching instead of is grammar, we're actually teaching how to get to style, how to see and read and interpret and create your own tone and voice. That was what the, this article talked about. It just changes what we're saying, what we're um solving for. And so as an example, you know, in elementary school, by hand, I used to do long division. I have not done long division since elementary school. And I look back and I go, you know, do I really need to know long division? No. However, there is so much good evidence that suggests the process of learning long division, the process of learning by hand mathematics. I don't know what the, the, the value of the process of learning by hand, you know, cursive writing, but brain development in elementary school should be super scientific. Like we should be following and iterating on our, um, on our papers all the time, right? But as we, in high school, we need to start blending them into the real world. Uh, you know, the, the pervasive topic that we see out of Silicon Valley these days is the universities will die. The 50% will be gone in five years. I think it's probably extreme, but you know, there is a pervasive conversation going on and it's because universities are not adapting quick enough to the changing needs of our workforce. Mm -hmm. And 
So if we're not, if they're not adapting, then we got to start adapting at high school, right? Um, because some, there's 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 going to be shifts over the next five to ten years in the whole higher ed landscape, and hopefully they they are able to adopt and move quickly and solve some of these structural problems. Because if they don't, then you have to look at the fundamentals, the first principles. People want the best product for the lowest price. Yep. And so if a university degree is going to cost over hundred thousand dollars and it's not the best product and you can get an alternative skills-based courses, micro courses, get you right into a job in, in four to six weeks or sorry, four to six months, um, they're going to, they're going to do it. Right. That's the thing. Well, you raise a couple of other questions that are going on there. So the reason why I don't think that we go to college necessarily to get a degree, unless it's like being a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, things that require years of experience, right? And lots of practice. What I think that most people go to college for, and it's never said this way, is you go to learn how to be socialized. And with large groups or with, you know, working with teams, because usually you're not very well you're not that well, maybe 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 I'll, I'll i'll disagree with that in a, in a, in a positive tone. like i think that um you know if we are to look at the last 20 years generalizing i think people probably went to college because their parents told them they gotta go sure they wanted to get a better job sure could we put into a third one they wanted to have fun and socialize maybe sure let's yeah. just throw oh, it there. yeah let's just throw it in there sure <laughs> Well, it's a very expensive way to have fun. <laughs> like I tell you, you learn a lot when you travel alone. I've done it. Um, so, so let's let's think about this um, from a, from a first principles. Okay, so the notion. Let's start the first bucket is your parents pushing you to do so, right? Well, the generations have shifted. Now we we have sort of like you know the next generation. Your millennials are having kids and so on and so forth. And so your landscape in 10 to 10 to 15 more years is going to be people leaving or entering into that potentially higher ed post-secondary uh, university type stuff. But the, the millennials view on the value of a degree is very different than a boomer's view on the value of degree. I read a stat. I don't, don't quote me, but something like if you ask a boomer, is there, is a, is a university degree worth it? 85 something percent will say yes you ask a millennial it's like 15 percent. it's like polar polar opposites right so the question is is, is it going to carry that same weight is it, is that one area parents pushing them on there is that going to still be there my argument is no it's going away right so you have the second thing which is to get a good job right why is it to get a good job well the the university degree is a proxy for, for uh, critical thinking and knowledge, right? The universities have this monopoly on credibility. When you walk away from Harvard with a piece of paper, people are like, oh, that person knows their stuff. They've went through it all. Realistically, what is Harvard really, really good at? Harvard is really, really good at admissions, filtering out to get the best people in. Mm -hmm. Is their education 10 times better than going to like Utah State? Is it? Is it really worth so much more money? I don't know. I've never gone there. Prestige, but right? but the but the prestige, the the credibility, that piece of paper is worth more. Mm -hmm. So, the, the, but when you look at universities, when I talk about the currency of value being credibility, and that piece of paper is a proxy, it acts as a proxy for knowledge. 
Well, my question was, well, what happens when people start to question the integrity of that piece of paper? When they start to question because, oh yeah, well, you're, not, you're doing nothing in your assessments to filter out for ChatGPT or nothing in your assessments to do for Chegg, Quiz Hero, Quizlet. Like you have adapted nothing in your barometers of success. So you're pushing out people that maybe don't know the material and don't have the critical thinking skills. So then the question becomes, well, what's the difference between going and doing a MOOC or a small course in four, four months that has guaranteed placement at a, uh, at a company? Mm-hmm. You know, I, is it really worth hundreds of thousands, right? No, I. that's where I'm going to say no. I think that you can now go to school if you want to go to school for two years and try and figure out what you're good at if you still don't know that. And then work in those two years to figure out what industry you're going to be in and what you might want to do. But I feel like for schools to make that happen, I you'd be surprised. I don't know about you, but most students that are the standard age of 2021, 20, they don't know what industries are. So there's not even that discussion. They talk about a career path, but they're not even saying, okay, so this is what an industry is. And you can have a marketing degree and a career and go anywhere you like, whether it's games or if it's, I don't know, pick anything, Niagara Falls and how the water. Yeah, but, but sometimes like too much choice is bad. I mean, there's a, there's a stat out there. I don't remember what it is, but it basically there's a certain number of people that just follow in their parents' footsteps. They go into the same industry that their parents were in. I mean, you could probably think, if you just thought about five people in your circle and just be like, okay, well, what, how are they connected to their parents or the industry or something? Your chances are, you know, I'd say at least one or two of those people followed in their parents' footsteps or were adjacently close to it, right? I was like, well, I'm not quite a lawyer, but I work in legal services. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that kind of thing. Um, or, you know, we're working in the mining industry. I mean, I so happen to be the, when I did that mining industry work, um, my mother was working in the mining industry, right? That was a huge lift in understanding and help for sure in understanding the industries that are out there. But it only hasn't come to the last, you know, few years that I've learned of these industries that exist that I didn't even know existed. Like um, supply chain sustainability, compliance management consulting. I'm like, whoa, I've never seen that before. Uh, you know, so so I think that that there is a thing about too much choice. But again, if I were to boil it down, if you have a, a, an individual, he is intrinsically motivated to learn something. Uh, they have that motivation, and they are have that discipline that that. Um, deliberate practice that we are what we repeatedly do excellence type yes. piece they're gonna get themselves into an industry and they're gonna make well into the six figures within two three to five years of that industry uh, because they're gonna outgrit everyone else mm-hmm. and i know one i had a co-founder that was one no university degree made good money in technology mm-hmm. very good yeah. and didn't follow his parents' footsteps. So much respect for that person because he outgridded everyone else, right? He put in the time and he had the intrinsic motivation to do so. So I'm just saying that I think that this society will will, will reward that more and more as we yeah. as we move forward in time. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, okay, what is so hard to believe? It's been like an hour, but what is the best mentoring advice that you want to share with our listeners? Keep in mind they're eclectic for all industries and the 
at least yeah. three generations. Yeah, I think that uh, this was a fascinating question that I saw, and it's the same advice. I'm just going to tell you how I got here. I saw it once where a friend was asked, he said, if you had to look back at yourself 10 years ago, you know, in your, in your twenties or whatever, um, in, in 10, 15 years ago, or if you looked at yourself and you said, when you were in 20, when you were 25, what advice would you give you? And there was a resounding thing that fits no matter how old you are. And, and it's really applicable to today's world. And it is take more action. So think about it less and just do it. In today's world, the things that are being rewarded are people who do, not people who get it right the first time. So there is this notion of, um, you know, getting it out there and is and learning is better than not getting it out there and trying to get it perfect. Mm -hmm. So my advice, my mentoring advice to any listener out there is just take more action. If you were thinking, I've always wanted to start that side hustle or that business, just do it. Just get into it. Just put something out there. It's to start a newsletter, get it out there. Um, so I, I think maybe the, maybe the Nike's got it. Just do it. You know? Yeah. I was going to say, you sound like Nike right now. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're like, just do it. Get to the, get to the gym. What I'm talking about is just do it. Like that idea you had, there's so many tools available to start a business, to start new things, to try ideas. And don't worry that if you don't get your likes on Facebook, right? It's some will fail, some will succeed. Just take action. Mm, good stuff there. Yeah. How can people yeah. find you? What's your website? Best social channels yeah. to reach you. Yeah, examined.io. That's E-X-A-M-I-N-D.io. Uh, that's our website. Um, and yeah, you can probably find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I think you're going to put some links, uh, but that's, that's the best place to find us. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much. This has been just delightful. I'm so glad I got to have you on the show and I look forward to having more conversations with the transcend group. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this too. I know I was a bit probably rambly, but, uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I like the subject. Uh, I like to switch a lot of subjects really quickly. Yeah. You did great. And I know our listeners are going to love the show. So thank awesome. you. Awesome. Take care. Thank you to our video and editing sponsor, Cat5 Studios. We want to thank our production and editing editor, Josue Gonzalez, and our music by Sophie Lloyd. Visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusion culture while scaling your people for the future. Thank you for supporting The Intern Whisperer by subscribing to us on Podbean, or you can find our video on our Employers for Change YouTube and Facebook channels, or you can stream from your favorite podcast channel.